Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 123 of the Game Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Jerry Thompson went out to lunch with Cedric Phillips again. And wouldn't you know, he has been poisoned again by the dire fleet poisoner himself, Cedric Phillips. But really, there comes a point where I cannot keep rewarding Cedric's behavior. I said enough's enough. I didn't give him the slot this time to come on and co-host with me. I do have a very special guest for you, though. We'll get to that in just a second. Before we do, just want to take a moment and thank everyone. We asked last week if you all wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes and leaving us a review, an honest review. Let people know what you think about the game podcast, what it's brought you know, to your magic life. And you all responded in force. So many reviews came pouring in over on iTunes. We are so appreciative. We're going to give everyone a couple more weeks to go ahead and participate. And then, like we said, we're going to grab a few of our favorite reviews Read them right here on the show and get in touch with you and get you some cool game swag, some sleeves and deck boxes and that kind of stuff. But sincerely, thank you so much. Things like that make a huge difference in getting our cast out to other people. And I truly, truly appreciate it. But enough of that. Let's get to our guest. And I'll be honest, when we have to replace Jerry, it's hard to find an adequate replacement. In most instances, it's going to be a downgrade, especially when we're dealing with the dire fleet poisoner, Cedric Phillips. And please don't tell him I said that because I guess he is my boss and I do like my job quite a bit. But I am confident today for the topic that we are discussing, we have gotten a huge, huge upgrade because today we are talking about the best deck in modern, the deck with no bad matchups. Of course, I am talking about Amulet Titan. And I have joining me none other than Edgar M. Edgar, I've, I've taken to calling you Edgar M. on my Star City Games broadcasts because several times you have coached me on how to pronounce your last name, and I'm still terrible at it. So please coach me and all of our listeners one more time on exactly how to pronounce your last name. Hey, Brian. Uh, well, the official way of doing it would be Magayange, but... Uh anything close to that. So Megalange is usually what I tell people. And that's that's good enough for me. People have been messing it up my whole life. So Megalange, is that close? Am I getting in, oh, yeah. in, the, in the ballpark? Yeah, that sounds uh, just about right, actually. Okay. So th- there's something about your name and I, I believe it's Portuguese in origin. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. There, there's something about your name that doesn't click with my stupid American brain. Like I just can't <laughs> wrap my head around it. And we've done this before. Like you have absolutely taken me aside at an SCG event, coached me so I can say it properly in my broadcast. And then I sit down in the booth and I'm just like, I got nothing. I can't do this. And, and I just crumble under pressure. Yeah. It's that, uh, it's that LH making that Y sound that just, I, I think it doesn't exist in the English language. So it's kind of a, a weird thing for, for non Portuguese speakers to, to comprehend, I guess. 
Right. Well, I do apologize. I've also had my last name butchered throughout a lot of my life, and I know it's frustrating. So I, I'm going to keep trying. Someday you're going to be listening to an SCG broadcast, and I'm just going to nail it like spot on. You're going to be like, yes, awesome pronunciation, Brian. But we're not here to talk about pronunciation or last names. We are here to talk about Amulet Titan. And of course, Edgar, I think you know over the past few years, you have become synonymous with this archetype. You, along with a few other folks I can think of, you know, uh, Matthias Hunt comes to mind. I would think of Sam Black, Justin Cohen, of course, your teammates on the SCG tour, Daryl Ayers, Matthew Dilks, uh, Will Pulliam. There, there's so many people who have gravitated to this archetype now. But tell us, how did you first get on board with Amulet Titan? Do you remember when you picked up the deck for the first time? Yeah, I, I actually remember it pretty vividly, and it uh, it goes all the way back to the the Summer Bloom days, actually. Modern was a format that I got into pretty late. I started playing Magic pretty late, and I actually uh, picked up Birthing Pod as my first deck, Malira Pod specifically. Okay, and good choice. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fantastic deck. It's something I enjoyed a lot, and obviously we all know that deck ended up getting banned because it was, it was extremely powerful, and it was right before uh, the start of a Pro Tour that... I believe Justin Cohen and Sam Black ended up top eighting with with Summer Bloom. I thought when I was walking that pro tour from my home, I, I was looking for ideas of a new new deck to build because I I didn't have anything else. I had been playing Summer or Birthing Pod the whole time, and as soon as I saw it on coverage, it just excited me in in a way that that excited me the same way Birthing Pod did, where it had these these weird lines and these this weird toolbox engine that that kind of rewarded the same mindset. So I was a uh, I was pretty drawn to it immediately when I saw it. Yeah, that's a comparison I haven't heard a lot, but it makes a lot of sense, right? They're both toolbox decks. They're both fundamentally broken in a lot of ways. Like they do just absolutely silly stuff in a lot of spots. So I get that. Not a comparison I hear a lot, but it does make sense now that you describe it. For me personally, I think I've shared this with you before. But you were actually the inspiration for me picking up this deck. And I think we did an episode of KYT's podcast together right about the time when I was finally like, okay, that's it. I'm just learning Amulet Titan. I have no excuse anymore. And basically, you had just won uh, a 5K. I think it was Calgary, maybe? I think it was in Kitchener, actually. Okay. But yeah, I had I had just won a 5K. And I think it was like a month after I, I got 10th at a Grand Prix in Toronto. And right. uh, I, I, yeah, I do remember you saying like, this can't be a coincidence or something along those lines. No, it just seemed to me like it was the type of deck that really rewarded, you know, study and learning and just getting into the archetype and understanding everything about it because you had just been producing such consistent results and, you know, kind of no one else was really a believer in this deck, but here you are smashing every single tournament you play, something about it resonated with me. And I'm like, this is not a fluke. This is a deck that really does reward your effort. And that's what I've been looking for in modern the entire time. So basically I went all in, I ordered the vast majority of the deck in foil because I didn't want to give myself the (laughs) chance to opt out. I'm like, if I spend a ton of money, I'm going to commit to this deck. I'm going to start learning it. It proved to be true. I love the deck entirely. It's kind of changed my entire relationship with the modern format. Like, whereas I used to struggle a lot and never really found a home with the deck before this. Now I very much feel invested in Amulet Titan, and it's rewarded me handsomely. I've had quite a successful run with Amulet since I picked it up. Welcome to the crew, Brian. We all feel the same way. Yeah, and this is the thing you keep hearing from people. You know, uh, Mason Clark, who finished uh, fourth at the Team Open this past weekend, messaged me 
on Twitter and was like, you talking about this made me want to pick up this deck. And yes, I'm all in. You nailed it. I love this deck. I'm very excited to play it. And it feels like the adoption rate is growing, right? We see more Amulet Titan players every week. But I would argue it's still not where it should be for just how good this deck is. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. I've I've been... I've been advocating for it being, and I know there's a lot of memes surrounding it with the, the whole no bad matchups thing, and but but I have been advocating and saying that I, I believe that the deck is is very much a contender in the format, and if not the best deck, one of the best decks in the format, and I think it's pretty obvious how there's this select group of people who have put in so much work into it and have been putting up so much consistent results. The amount of people who are playing the deck versus the results it's putting out, I think it's it's pretty clear that there, there's something there, something way more than people are giving it credit for even, even to this day. And that's what I say too. I think I said something to the effect of basically the same five people play this deck in every tournament and there's always three of them in the top eight, it seems. Uh, now, granted, you formed a team with two of them and are carrying each other through other formats as well. But but still, you get my point. Like There's something very special here. And I think what I want to do today is just do our typical deep dive here in the game podcast. I want to talk about individual card choices. I want to talk about macro versions of the archetype. I want to talk about some sideboarding stuff. Uh, I want to talk about some specific matchups. And I think the best place to start is just talking through the deck list itself. And I, I think the indisputable core of this deck will always be basically four Primeval Titan, four Secure Tribe Scouts, although some people would even differ on that point. I wouldn't, but that's that's beside the point. We'll get to that. Four Azusas, four Amulet of Vigors, usually one Pact of Negation, four Summoners Pact, and four Ancient Stirrings, and you start there, and then there's a bunch of flex slots that kind of get molded around. Would you say that's basically where we're starting off? Yeah, that's definitely the, the core of the spells. I think it is important to recognize that the mana base is very much a part of the the core of the deck as well for obvious reasons and a, a lot of the lands are are spells in their own rights and and we're not actually playing 28 lands in this deck for the sake of pr- only producing mana so it's uh there, there's a lot of core that comes comes with the lands as well but yeah i would say that those spells you listed off are definitely the the key aspects and ones that i haven't not registered for a long time yeah, that's a great point. Our, our lands are basically spells in this deck. They're so powerful and can accomplish so much. If people want to kind of follow along with the cards I'm going to talk through beyond this point, I'm looking at the list that Daryl Ayers played at the Cincinnati Team Open, one of your teammates, of course. And basically, you said your list would be very, very close, if not the same as this list presently. I feel the same way. Maybe there's some points of differentiation in the sideboard, but I basically think this main deck is perfect. Why don't you go ahead and set up what we're doing with that core, what we're hoping to accomplish? I think most people know what Titan is doing at this point, but give us a little nuance. Talk about that point where you reach primeval Titan mana and kind of let people know how the game plan can branch off from that point. Well, that's where things get exciting, Brian. Uh, I agree. <laughs> so, like I said, it's very much a primeval titan deck, right? It's uh, you you could even say primeval titan is the birthing pot of the deck if you want to go back to that previous analogy. And once you hit primeval titan, the the object of the game very much becomes about how to not lose from that game state. And because you have so many options of things to find with your primeval titan, there's usually 
some sort of path you can take from 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 the triggers in order to make it that your opponent has a low chance or almost no chance of winning the game, whether that be finding Lance to stabilize the battlefield or finding a Teleria West, which lets you transmute for an answer to the battlefield or create an inevitability engine. There's always some some path, some branch that you can uh, traverse in order to give your opponent no chance, basically. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And one of the things that has held Amulet Titan back is perceived difficulty. And it's not false. The intricate decisions that this deck requires to maximize it are real and they're challenging and they ask a lot of the pilot. But, and this is a big but, it also is kind of set up very well to teach you those states simultaneously because in almost all games, you have really only one goal during the first few turns, and that is cast and resolve primeval titan and while your methods of getting there may change you know what your end spot is i need to get to primeval titan from there there's a puzzle to solve but step one is getting to that titan and that's a really great set of training wheels to be able to have while you're picking up a deck like this that is very complicated and asks a lot of you it's good to know that primeval titan one can bail you out a lot and two is just always your primary focus yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a lot of spots where maybe you'll get there a turn slower than you could have optimally, or maybe you'll get there and you gave your opponent slightly more outs after the fact. But usually those things are very in your face when they happen. I've mm-hmm. I've told people that when I was learning this deck, I, I bashed my head against the wall so many times. I, I, would, I would get punished repeatedly by a multitude of different cards. And, and it was just, all right, now I got to know how to play around that one. And now I know how I had to play around that one. And it's just about tying up all those loose ends, both before and after the Primeval Titan. Right. One of the things about my personal learning process, and I think the reason why this deck has resonated with me, is that I really don't fear making mistakes. Like I accept that I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to look foolish sometimes. And man, will this deck make you feel very, very foolish at times. But If you're the type of person who can always learn from a failure and can always try and look back on your mistakes and find an answer, the good news is that most time the answer was there. It was just obscured under a Boros Garrison that was stuck in your hand, right? That created a new puzzle for you to answer. But there was something there. There was something you could have done. And if you like chasing down that something, this is a really, really rewarding deck to play. One of the cool features, and this is a recent feature, I I think this is a really important, a really big upgrade. I don't know if I should credit you or one of your teammates with this, or if this is just a piece of technology that's kind of been floating on the periphery forever. Actually, the first place I really remember seeing it was in Dominic Harvey's list of Amulet Breach, which looks very different from traditional Amulet Titan lists. And we'll get to that in a second. But I'm talking, of course, about Coalition Relic. And this is a newer add to the deck, three mana artifact that gave us another way to ramp to Primeval Titan to survive under our worst matchup, Blood Moon. Yes, Blood Moon is your worst matchup. And just really open up some game plans to us. Talk about the process to including Coalition Relic in the deck and talk about what it's meant to the deck to have that kind of ace up its sleeve now. Yeah, I think we can give basically full credit to Dominic for for that technology. Um, it's a card that I had I had seen before and kind of dismissed and then reevaluated after Dominic's win. And I think it is 
become basically a mainstay in the deck now. And as we were talking about before, the, the goal being gained to Primeval Titan, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. But the fact that it's a three mana artifact that ramps you twice, even temporarily, and get you directly to six mana on your fourth turn, is kind of that like bread and butter turn to cast Primeval Titan. And right. it, it just does that so efficiently. It does it on its own. It's it's strong against Thoughtseize effects because it, it's, it doesn't require any other pieces. And it, it's kind of just... A big upgrade for over cards that we we have previously played in that slot. Stuff like Explore, stuff like Trink and Mage can still be good sometimes, but depending on the meta, is not necessarily fast enough or versatile enough. It's just a, a very nice card that also happens to have incidental hate, as you said, against our our worst possible hate card in Blood Moon, which is all of a sudden become way more beatable, like an incredible amount more beatable. It used to be such the nail in the coffin, but now it's. I find that I I can beat it pretty frequently. Yeah, it's funny. This kind of arrived at just the right time for us because I would argue that Blood Moon is on the uptick in the format. You know, most is it Phoenix decks are playing at least two copies in their sideboards, uh, and certainly is it Phoenix is the boogeyman of the format right now. I, I think. As much as I want to argue for Amulet Titan being the best deck, I do think Is It Phoenix will hold that crown for the time being. I think Amulet Titan is still the best deck for me. I think it can be the best deck for you, our listener, right now. But Is It Phoenix has some impressive things it can do, some impressive consistency, and it's very, very good. We found an out to Blood Moon at just the right time, or maybe we'd be having to put away this deck presently. Uh, thankfully, that's not the case. So we talked about a lot of the core mana engine cards. Now I want to get to these really flexy slots. And if you're looking at the list that Daryl played over in Cincinnati, I see kind of three flex slots being occupied right now among the spell base. And we'll get to flex slots in the land base in a second. We're going to you know, move along and talk about all those options in just a moment here. But the, the flex slots right now in the spell suite are taken up by Walking Ballista, Hornet Queen, Engineered Explosives. Talk to me about your team's process for arriving at those three spell slots and kind of how you see them fitting in in the metagame. When is it right to play specifically those cards? And I have to say, I love the return to main deck Hornet Queen. This is a card I see people waffle on all the time. It's even a card I see people want to cut from the 75 entirely. And I almost always hate it. I feel like it gets you out of so many unwinnable situations. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. We, me, me and Daryl have actually had a, a couple somewhat heated conversations about the uh, whether or not Hornet Queen is a sacred cow in the deck, and I've I've always pushed to to keep it at least in the sideboard where he's he's tried to cut it a couple times, but he's come back around to it, and it was actually his idea to put it into the main deck for this weekend, and I think it ended up being correct. It's just a very powerful card in the meta currently, and one of its biggest appeals right now is the fact that. Uh, it gives you some additional game against the boogeyman of the format, the Is, is It Phoenix deck. There, there are certain board states where uh, your Primeval Titan can't stabilize, and we were talking about this earlier, where part of the goal is to make sure that when you play your Primeval Titan, you tie up all your loose ends and try to stabilize against all the possibilities. But unfortunately, due to the restrictions and cards that exist in the, in, in the format, there's certain board states that you just can't beat. There's specifically... It's very difficult to deal with large flyers is, is the is the biggest issue. And Hornet Queen is a way to, to circumvent that in a sense. 
The other two flex slots, the walking ballista and engineered explosives. EE is uh, the type of card where I, w- I don't think I would ever play this deck without at least one in the main deck. It's just mm-hmm. it's just so good at covering so many of your bases. It, it gives you outs in spots where you would otherwise not have any outs. Like you wouldn't be able to beat an ensnaring bridge in game one or right. a meddling mage. And it's just, it does so much for, for so little cost. And you can hit it off ancient stirrings and you can transmute Telerio S for it. It, it just basically does everything the deck kind of wants to do in the games that aren't going exactly your way. And I think part of the big misconception of the deck is that you're not really as all-in as many people perceive. And the fact that you can tutor up these answers and slow the game down a little bit so that you can get to this game state where you resolve Titan and you pseudo-win the game is just very important. And Engineered Explosives is really good at doing that. Walking Ballista is... It's a highly contested card right now. It's a card that I haven't not played for a while. None of us have not played for a while, but there's been talk recently about it not being worthy of inclusion. And the way I've always viewed it is that it's kind of like an additional engineered explosives that has a little bit more versatility. It's a little bit better mm-hmm. on certain board states. If if your opponent has like a two drop and a one drop, you need to kill both of them, you can do that. And Or rather, you it, it also has this backup plan where you can play a super late game as a threat as well where sometimes sometimes your primeval titan's not good enough or you're playing against a control deck and you've and you cycle through all your primeval titans already and you just need this one additional like giant fireball card almost yeah it's a beautiful clock because it it ramps so quickly like a a ballista for eight which is something that you are totally capable of doing in the late game not only that you'll often be able to do it with like cavern of souls naming constructs in a bunch of spots but it it produces this clock that decks just simply can't answer you find a window and you just kind of blast through it with these huge ballistas and while it's doing that it's also like a two drop to pick off a mana creature or a dark confidant and it's just this hyper versatile card and You're right. That's the aspect of this deck that goes underappreciated is this versatility in all your answers. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful synergistic glue that holds it all together with Ancient Stirring, Summoner's Pact, Talaria West, creating this never-ending kind of tutor loop. Like I can't think of any other way to really phrase it. There's, There's just access to a tremendous portion of your deck really at all times. As long as you have the mana... You can do basically whatever you can imagine. Yeah, it's Squadron Titan is what we call it for the most part. I, I think that's spot on. It, it always brings friends with it. And sometimes those friends are counter spells. Sometimes they're sweepers. Sometimes it's just more Titans. And uh, they're ready to trample over your opponents and win the game on the spot. Then on top of all of this flexibility and versatility and game planning... I think this deck has the most turn two kills of really any viable deck in the format. Like, what's your turn two kill percentage? What would you estimate it at? Mm, Uncontested, I would guess it's probably around 8 to 10%. It's probably... That's really high. That's really high for the modern format. It's it's quite high because it doesn't... And it's not always a turn two lethal, but... Like deterministically lethal is might as might as well be just as good, right? And and I think that this sure. deck creates a lot of deterministic board states pretty quickly on the second or, or third turn. And I, I know I make this analogy a lot, but but to to throw it back to the to the whole pod thing, it, it's 
it's so similar to that in the sense where you're always threatening this capability of this super explosive turn that right. either outright kills them or makes it deterministically impossible for your opponent to win like you would with your infinite life or infinite damage combo and since you're always threatening this your opponent always has to like awkwardly react to you and then as you're doing this you can just push through your value engine instead and and make it super awkward for your opponent i love that you mentioned that because throughout modern's history the best decks have often been these decks which have a b plan of like slow culminating pressure backed up by the oops i killed you out of nowhere think birthing pod think splinter twin and amulet titan very much has that same feel you just don't expect it because it's coming with a bunch of artifacts and green cards you know that seems like the realm of something more explosive you, you wouldn't expect titan to have that same odd pressure that it exerts on opponents but it absolutely does and like you said i think eight to ten percent is about right for the turn to kill ratio and in and of itself, that wouldn't be worth all that much, right? Like you could point to something like probably Grishol brand, which has close to the same percentages of turn two kills, maybe more, maybe they're closer to like 15%, but they don't have the same kind of fail rates and they don't have the same kind of fair games. And in fact, some of your best matchups are just decks that want to play fair against you. Like if, if they're slowing down and trying to disrupt you, you go, fine, I'll beat you on turn 12 instead and just slowly generate value. And Birthing Pod used to do very much the same thing. Splinter Twin used to do the same thing where it worked itself into a point of inevitability very, very slowly. And I love that style of game planning. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and uh, it's it's worth saying that because of the way that the deck functions and isn't susceptible to the, the similar hate cards that other decks in the format are it's really difficult to like try to attack it specifically and without attacking it specifically it's it's much easier for for us to play that slow game and to take things slowly and and reach that inevitability state while also threatening what we're trying to do for our a plan yeah absolutely and i think of like it's not a very popular deck at this point, but Jund, right? Jund would kind of get their sideboard ancient grudges and their other disruption for your quick combo kills. And you're like, all right, well, I don't need my amulets anymore. And I have all these value generating cards and really you can't beat me in a long game. So I'll just slow down. You know, you'd often cut like your mana dorks, like the Sakura tribe scouts and Azusa's would be trimmed. And you just became like this fair basically control deck that just had primeval titan as the top end and that was almost always good enough against jun they hated playing against amulet titan when they were actually part of the format yeah you just you just bored into this like like valica deck with a bunch of demonic tutors basically like you just you just haymaker them turn after turn and eventually they're going to run out you're going to top deck way better than them and they're a deck that's built to turn the game into a into a top deck war yeah that's the benefit of playing something like I mean, it depends how you want to define virtual copies of Primeval Titan. Like, do you count Ancient Stirrings as a virtual copy? Because it can go find Talaria West and transmute into uh, Summoner's Pact. I don't know. I don't know if you should count that or not. The, ma- but the math is difficult you- on that one. <laughs> right. You, you can you can at least make the argument that like you have access to so many copies. And even if it costs you a bunch of mana, well, that's fine because your entire deck is based around generating a bunch of mana. And at some point, all of those cards become live off the top of the deck and you end up with like 
16 virtual copies. I know at Cincinnati this weekend, we were uh, covering one of Daryl's matches. And I was just like, okay, basically every single card in his deck off the top is live right now. Like he literally has something like 30 plus outs because he has Talaria West in hand. So if he draws a bounce land, he's able to turn that into a threat. Or if he just draws an ancient stirrings, he gets a bounce land or just finds the threat outright. Like you just reach this point where everything is good. And that's hard for these fair value decks to really overcome as the game stretches on. Why don't we talk a little bit about this mana base now? Because obviously, this is what makes Amulet Titan work. And all the press goes to the flashy ads, the one-ofs, the silver bullets that can do all these ridiculous things. Instead of talking about that first, though... Talk to me about what it means to have your mana base consist primarily of bounce lands, because obviously there's a very clear and notable downside. Most of your lands come into play tapped. You're very vulnerable to land destruction, so on and so forth. But there's also some subtle upsides there too, right? Yeah, there there is. It's it's no it's no mystery that the the Ravnica bounce lands are just inherent card advantage on their own. Whenever you you mulligan to six or mulligan to five and and you have a simic growth chamber, it's it's almost as if you undid one of those mulligans, and that is that is definitely something that's relevant when you're trying to hit six mana sources in in a, in a deck, right? Yeah, I think people fail to appreciate that at first. If you played any Ravnica Limited, you certainly know this principle very well. You know how powerful those bounce lands are, and granted, sometimes in the modern format, it's tough. They're slow, and the modern format can be very breakneck. But in those spots where you do mulligan to six, you mulligan to five. And yes, this deck should mulligan somewhat frequently. I, I think just like every deck in modern, you have a huge variable range of hands and hand strength. And in general, you were rewarded for good and aggressive mulliganing decisions. So it's nice to have some payback in the form of those bounce lands to kind of make up for some of that lost card advantage along the way. Yeah, mulliganing is is very much a privilege in this deck, and and the oh, fact yeah. that you can undo those with the, with the bounce lands is, is very nice. Now, of course, I think that this is probably the deck in modern that is most most prone to the the, the sample hand uh, Twitter post because <laughs> right. there there are some duds, and and I and I won't begin to to deny that, but uh, I definitely encourage people to mulligan frequently with this deck. I think that that it is one of the benefits of this deck is the fact that it gets to mulligan to, to more premium hands, and the fact that you don't get punished as much as another deck is is definitely a boon. Yeah, for sure. So I actually just want to talk land by land, I, I, because I think the lands are such a critical part of the strategy. Every single one bears some direct mention. Of course, have to start with our four basic forests. I love having access to all four of these basics. You get paid on Path to Exile frequently enough. Ghost Quarter, you're almost always able to find a basic. You have some natural draws to get out of Blood Moon. I think Four Forest is virtually indispensable. And also, you do need some number of untapped land so you can hit things in a timely fashion. Yeah, the turn one untapped green sources is one of the, the biggest flaws of the mana base the mm-hmm. sacred tribe scout is is actually pretty sketchy to cast you don't get to do it very frequently it is mitigated a bit by by the mulligans but it is the thing that if i could i would try to improve the most but the number of forests specifically originally had less to do with blood moon it is definitely a benefit right now but 
it was as low as two copies uh, even a year ago, maybe maybe a year and a half at this point. But it, it was the printing of Field of Ruin actually that uh, basically made it necessary to play at least the third copy, and and now we have the fourth copy because it's just there's just so many decks that that incidentally have this land destruction in their deck now because it's such a low cost for them and the difference between not finding a basic and finding a basic is is game changing for the most part huge right absolutely i totally agree let's get to the first of our utility land this is the one that just makes the dredge matchup an absolute joke i, I love it i got to see <laughs> several amulet versus dredge matchups throughout the weekend as always it's just an absolute smash i am of course talking about bajuka bog if you were new to this deck, you'd be like, oh, great, one Bajuka Bog. What does that matter? You know, one activation on Dredge isn't going to beat them. But you play it every single turn against Dredge. You just find bounce lands. It's a constant stream of Bajuka Bogs. You have your Sakura's Tribe Scouts to play it at instant speed. Basically, if you find your Bajuka Bog, you are going to deny Dredge meaningful access to the game in its entirety. Yeah, the, the game is basically over if you're playing against Dredge and, and there's a Bajuka Bog in the top 10 cards of your library. It's pretty funny, and if I can go on a bit of a tangent here, the the very first weekend that I played this deck again post Summer Bloom banning was at a Star City of Games event, and I played against Jerry in like the fifth round or something. I think it was round five, and I knew he was on Dredge. And game one, my opening hand had a Sacred Tribe Scout and a Bajuka Bog, and <laughs> he he gave me this like weird nod. When, when I did it to him on for his like turn two cathartic reunion and it was it was a very satisfying feeling but <laughs> th- that that stuff just comes up very frequently it's and, and people will argue how much of an actual opportunity cost it is to put in your deck but in my opinion it is very much a low opportunity cost and it's such a high upside because when you when you want an effect like that the the, the number of games where you're going to be able to find it is just it's so high and it's, it's so likely to have an impact. Even beyond the dredge matchup, just being able to shrink right. Termagoyfs or Fizzle or turn off a Snapcaster Mage, like against against Blue White Control, for instance, you let them path your first Titan, but then you bog them so they can't Snap Path your second one. These things all come up in so many matchups, and it's just so much value. And and like you said, the fact that you get to play it multiple times in a game is just modern is very much a graveyard format right now, and and just being able to do just a little bit is is always going to promote your game plan. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And yeah, like the flashy use for Bajuka Bog is to just completely dismantle Dredge. But there's so many decks it's meaningful against, like a Renegade Rallier that's going to return a a lethal Devoted Druid, or there's just a billion applications. And the more you play with the deck, the more you see them come up and you realize Bajuka Bog is indispensable. I've never really seen anyone advocate leaving the bajuka bogs behind uh i guess at some point there was like they were in the sideboard but it feels like we're way past that and it's just a clear main deck inclusion at this point i've even occasionally seen a second copy floating around in sideboards and in general you have such good access to bajuka bog you i don't think you really need the second copy but if the format goes really off the rails and it's all about dredge it's nice to know you have just like basically an 80 20 matchup in your back pocket if you want it by just throwing another bajuka bog in your sideboard yeah, I already think the matchup is like pretty incredible, and it's almost solely on the back of this card. Basically, as soon as Primeval Titan hits the battlefield, they're they're never going to dredge, and they're never going to conflagrate you for the rest of the game, and that's usually enough. 
Yeah, that's very difficult for them to beat. Uh, moving on, we have our first bounce land, Boros Garrison, of course, there to be used in combination with our Slayer's Stronghold. I guess we're at the point where we should talk a little combo. Basically, give us the cleanest kills available to us. Like, like what's the one-shot kill? When we're talking about turn two kills, tell our listeners how basically that always happens. So in order to turn two fully lethal, fully 20 damage, it requires two Amulet of Vigors, a Primal Titan, and an Azusa Lost but Seeking is, is the cleanest way. And either the Titan or the Azusa or both can be replaced by a Summoner's Pact, obviously. But you go turn one Amulet off your untapped land, and then turn two, you play an Amulet, you play a Bounce Land, you go up to four mana, you play your Azusa down to one, you play your Bounce Land back up to five, Bounce Land again up to nine mana, and you play your Titan. And then your Titan gets the Boros Garrison and the Slayer Stronghold like we just talked about. Because of the way Amulet works, they having multiple of them lets you stack your triggers however you want. And what this lets you do is lets you untap your Boros Garrison twice, make red, white, red, white, and then give it plus four, plus O oh with the two Slayer Stronghold activations. And then when you attack, you get your Rezufa to copy the Boros Garrison and your Sun Home, and you give it double strike, and that's 20 damage. And that will kill most modern decks on, on turn two. Now, I realize that if you have not played Amulet Titan before, that all sounds very complicated. I assure you that after just a few games, that one's uh, it, it's clean. It's easy. You'll get it. I promise you. And one of the things that I think is important, people get very bogged down in these kind of Amulet Titan puzzles. I don't think that's where your study with the deck should start. I think your study starts with understanding these very clean, easy kills. And it's not about just having them listed to you. Like I wrote this article a few months ago. It was entitled Learning the Most Difficult Decks in Modern or something to that effect. I don't know if that's the exact title. I'll try to remember to shoot out a link over on my Twitter account when this episode comes out. But essentially, it was about my efforts to learn both this deck and KCI. And obviously, we no longer have to worry about KCI. But KCI had a lot of similar features where it had these very intricate combo turns, and it felt like a lot to take on at first. But I kind of advocated this system where you just start with the most basic things. And what I was really asking my readers to do was just start with battlefields of Primeval Titan plus one amulet and understand what you can do. Then go to two amulets and a Primeval Titan and figure out how to kill your opponent. Then go to one amulet, three mana floating, and a Primeval Titan. And just put together all these permutations and start to understand what you're capable of on various battlefields. And then you'll see there's a lot of linking points and a lot of overlap. And these same kind of things come up over and over and then there's the complicated situations where you end up with your Boros Garrison in your hand or you don't have access to your Vesuva. And then you start to understand how Gemstone Mine can unlock some stuff for you in certain situations. And it, it all comes together very slowly, but basically you need to start with your foundation. And your foundation is exactly what you just described. That's your turn to kill. Talk about you're non-turn two kill. Like you don't have double amulet, you have single amulet, but you set up an early primeval titan. You have like turn three titan. Talk about the decision-making process behind what you're going to do with that turn three titan with one amulet. Yeah, so th that's the most common situation. And I, I actually think that those are the situations that people struggle with the most with the deck. And, and since it's so common, I think it's very important that people 
when they're learning this deck, they need to understand that at these stages, you're you're not a combo deck. You're you're trying to create this inevitability engine like we were talking about before. And when you play a turn three Titan, I usually do a quick a quick check. The, the first check I do is, can I kill my opponent? And usually the answer is no, but that's where those amulet puzzles you were talking about come into play. And while I agree it's not necessarily going to matter all the time, it's, it's always good to check when you can. But yeah. the, the next thing I check for is, am I in immediate danger of dying? And that, that can obviously happen multiple different ways, right? It could be my opponent has 10 power on the battlefield, and how do I combat that? It could be my opponent has a brawl on the battlefield, and they're about to untap on their third turn. How do I prevent that? And those are the, the situations where knowing the modern format intimately is, is very important, and knowing what your opponent is capable of doing on, on the following turn is necessary, because that can influence whether your Titan gets a Kabira Crossroads and a Colony Garden in order to stabilize, or it gets a Ghost Quarter so that your opponent can't kill you with an, with an Inkmoth Nexus, or the most common thing that you might nece- you might get is a Talaria West and a Simic Growth Chamber, pick up the Talaria West and transmute for a blue pack so that you can't die to their combo. And all these things aside, it's about not dying and untapping with your Primeval Titan so that you can you can go again and, and think about the following turn. But in the situations where you're not at an immediate danger of dying, it's about making sure that you are never in a game state where you have to get lucky again. And and that's again where the Teleri West comes into play because I think a lot of people, they're eager to finish the game. They, they feel so far ahead and they want to like get in that extra damage or, or, or whatnot. But in general, I think it's more important that when you play your Titan on turn three, if you're not in immediate danger of dying, usually what ends up happening is you end up getting a Tolario West, you get a Bounce Land, and you transmute for another Summoner's Pact, and then all of a sudden your opponent has to deal with both the board and your hand, and even if they deal with one of the two, they're in the exact same spot the following turn. Yeah, one of the things I tell new Amulet players is slow and steady. Like, just relax, you'll get there. Primeval Titan is a value engine. You don't have to kill your opponent now. When Jerry and I went down to cover the Hunter Burton Memorial Open a couple weeks ago, we covered a match between an Amulet Titan player and a blue-white control player. And this Amulet Titan player was the most aggressive Amulet <laughs> Titan player you have ever seen in your life. He always went for it. Like it didn't matter what his what mana his opponent had open. He was just always 100% of the time getting a Slayer Stronghold, Boros Garrison, jamming an attack. And he got path repeatedly, repeatedly. He won the match. And him and I talked afterwards. Uh, we did an interview on air. And, you know, we just kind of chatted a bit. How long had you been playing the deck? And he hadn't been playing the deck that long. And I was like, you know, your lines were hyper aggressive there. And he's like, yeah, I'm still f- kind of finding my footing. And my approach is just, I'm always going for it no matter what. That's fine. That's a fine place to start. But you have to understand that if you are maximizing this deck to its full potential, that's not what you're doing. It's all about slowing down in the right spots. Certainly, if you have a free Slayer Stronghold activation, you should take it. And it's often, I think, pretty clear when that's a safe play. Like, you don't do it generally into open white mana because you fear Path to Exile. Uh, You know, if you're in, like, double Lightning Bolt range against a red deck, you'll often not want to go for it and just get some uh, life gain instead. But it'll, it'll be clear to you when it's safe to go ahead and take that shot and get a little bit aggressive with your Titan and get a free attack in. But in most instances, if you're uncertain... 
you want to play it safe. You want to set up like Talaria West, or you want to get Colony Garden to protect from Liliana, or to have just a blocker on that turn. Or maybe you need to get Ghost Quarter to disrupt your Tron opponent. Kind of skipping ahead here and talking about a lot of our bullets. Mm -hmm. But it, it really requires some strategic flexibility and understanding exactly where you rest in the matchup, how much time you have, and how you're ultimately going to win this game. Yeah, I definitely agree. And and as you become more more comfortable with the deck, that planning starts to become multiple turns ahead of time. And and that's where right. the, the huge level up with the deck is, especially when you start talking about these bullets, because although you can pick them up when it comes to the lands, some of the transmutable bullets are only one of, so there's limited resources when it comes to stuff like that. So there, there's a lot of planning in, in that sense. But I think that in general... If you played your Titan and tutored up another Titan, you would be correct more often than not compared to what people do. Yeah, that's a very good rule. Okay, let's move on through our, our toolbox here of lands. Next on the list, Cavern of Souls. So certainly Jeskai, blue-white control, not what they were in the format. But again, this one feels like kind of free. It's an untapped turn one source for our Sakura Tribe Scouts. And then it just fundamentally changes those matchups against the control decks. You have a very real, very clear plan that in most instances, if you are protecting your Cavern of Souls the way you should, and that's a very important part of this equation, don't expose your Cavern of Souls where you don't have to. But if you're protecting it where you should, it really gives you inevitability in those matchups. Yeah, it it, it lets you enable that 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 tutor engine where you, you wouldn't be able to start it otherwise. And... Like you said, it's important to be able to to protect it, and sometimes that can be tricky, especially now that they're packing multiple field of ruins. But it it is it is a real game plan against them, and something like soccer tribe scout and a bounce line in your hand goes a long way to protect it as well. And there's a, there's a lot of a lot of things you can do with it. But in, in addition to the hard control matchups, it's actually a very important card against some of the blue tempo decks. And maybe tempo is not the right word, but I'm talking like the Grixis Death Shadows and mm. at certain points in, in modern uh, is a Phoenix, but uh, Spirits is another deck that comes to mind. These these decks that are presenting you with this really fast clock, but also are playing stuff like Disdainful Stroke in the sideboard, it actually ends up being one of your important cards because, and I'm skipping a little bit ahead to the, to the sideboard here, but against the control decks, you're going to have access to counter magic after board with negate. But against something like, like Spirits or Shadow, bringing in a card like that is very much a liability. If you're going to have a negate in your opening hand and get Thoughts used into, into Gurmeg Angler or just get Supreme Phantom into, into Geist's Saint Traft, you're, you're going to be in for a bad time. And having a land in your deck that can help help to combat their cyborg cards without having to, to be reactive like that is really important. Fantastic point. Very well said. Uh, let's move down to Gemstone Mine now. Anything you want to say about Gemstone Mine? It's just kind of a little bit of glue for a deck that has some complicated mana requirements. Can do some tricky stuff with it. Obviously, we can reset it with our bounce lands. Uh, sometimes when you have Ramanep Excavator in your deck, it's actually an additional mana source yep. by taking off your last counter with Gemstone Mine. And by the way, if you think your deck is complicated before wait till you get access to ramanap excavator and <laughs> post board games and all these crazy lines unlock from the graveyard uh things like ghost quarter in your own stuff to generate mana it it really just goes bonkers but anything else you want to say about gemstone mine it, it's kind of one of the simpler cards in the list right it, it's simple it's it's low-key one of the best lands in your deck and 
if anyone had ever considered cutting one, I would I would never do that. Totally agree. And and sadly, it's also one of the most expensive foils in the deck. I do not yet have <laughs> foil gemstone mines, but someday I'm sure I'll take the plunge. They're like a hundred dollars. You're committed now, right? Brian. You have to. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really only like ten cards away, and the ones I keep waffling on are the four gemstone mines, which, like I said, about a hundred dollars a piece. Sakura tribe scouts, uh, which I usually don't see for like less than sixty dollars a piece, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and what else have I really been holding off on? I don't have engineered explosives yet, but I think I'm going to get box topper engineered explosives. I really like those. Oh, gross. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, all my foils are gross. <laughs> First of all, I love from the vault, from the vault foils. I think the foiling process is the best out of all foils. I also have a ton of like mass, like my, uh, Azusa's or masters 25 Azusa's. So are my Sumner's pack. So I just have the grossest possible foils and I can't wait till I can pick up some like, invocations for the times we go to spell pierce like i want to have spell pierce invocations and i I just love these gross hideous foils they're absolutely the best ones you can get a pack negation i don't know if you have that one Uh, i don't no i only have a regular foil pack negation so i will at some point pick up pick up that one for sure so moving down our utility land list we have ghost quarter key for the mirror key for keeping tron in check nothing feels better than ramonap excavator plus Ghost Quarter, plus Azusa. Is there anything more powerful in the world than the combination of those three cards? No, that is truly magic like Richard Garfield intended. And I I, I jump at the opportunity whenever I get the whenever I do, I get the chance. Me too. I, I love Ramonap Excavator as a sideboard card. And we're going to get to the sideboard in a moment. But as you can tell with all these things I keep bringing up, I think it gives so much strategic versatility there's been times where it's left my sideboard just because it doesn't line up great with the format, but on the whole, I'm very happy when I can find a slot for it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And to go back to Ghost Quarter, I think that in terms of the main deck utility lands, Ghost Quarter is the one that you could most likely relegate to the sideboard if that was something that you wanted to do, like you wanted to squeeze an extra green source or perhaps just play one less land for some reason. I, th- I think it is the lowest impact main deck uh, utility land. But there, there becomes this tension with uh, putting lands in your sideboard where on on one hand it's good, but on the other hand it's kind of nice that you get to play an additional card in your sideboard and just relegate your your quote-unquote sideboard card to your, to your mana base. It is difficult in that sense, but it is a card that I have played more frequently in the sideboard than any other bullet. Interesting. I've always had one main. I've always appreciated it main, but I do see what you're saying. I, I guess... It's one of those things where you have access to this incredible tutor engine and it feels like such a loss to just not have that one copy in your main deck when you need it. And it's funny too, a lot of times I'll side it out and then just be like, oh man, if I had Ghost Quarter here, I'd be in such a good spot. (laughs) And it's in non-obvious places too, like non-obvious matchups. So it's funny how that works out sometimes. Uh, Our next utility land, Kabira Crossroads. And this is a good point to talk about the branching paths that this deck has taken over the past few months. For the longest time, this was a Radiant Fountain. Of course, right. colorless land doesn't come into play tap, still gains you the two life. You need some land in your deck that can gain you two life. But in recent months, the deck has moved away from red as its tertiary color and gone to white. And that has allowed us to play Kabir Crossroads instead of Radiant Fountain. But talk about the impetus for that switch, Edgar. What was really the deciding factor in giving up on these red spells? Uh, you know, it was a braid, it was fire spout, those type of cards, and moving to white, really mostly for Path to Exile. 
Yeah, Path to Exile was basically the entire reason, and a braid was was kind of de, de facto. A braid and fire spell were the de facto uh, cyborg removal spells for the longest time, and it, it was actually uh, a gentleman called Francisco, who's a who's a streamer. I'm sure we'll talk about him more later, but he was yes. the first person that I noticed uh, playing Path to Exile, and it, it gets it just made a lot of sense because at the time the format was shifting more towards Grix's Death Shadow, and Phoenix had had just started popping up. And obviously, a braid is just not a reasonable removal spell in in either of those matchups, both because of Thing in the Ice and because of Gurmeg Angler. Like it's just it's just not enough. And I think we had been experimenting with like a fistful of dismembers, but the mm-hmm. the transition to Path to Exile was just very natural and, and just made made a lot of sense. And it was it was just a very easy change. And I think it's a change that kind of got blown out of proportion a little bit amongst the the amulet community. There were there were talks about it being like this new white build, as if it was like a, a completely di- different direction. But I, I think it's just a very it's a very subtle change, and it, it requires you to make some small changes to your mana base as well. But in in essence, it's the the same deck. You're just changing your way of combating the format almost. Yeah, it's kind of cool that amulet has access to those kind of shifts when it needs to. Back when KCI was running around all over the place and affinity was more of a factor, you could totally see wanting a braid. And if we cycle back to another artifact-based meta, you know, say War Prison was all of a sudden 25% of the metagame and there was lantern control everywhere, I'm sure we would go ahead and change back to the red list. But as it stands right now, Phoenix being the top dog, we certainly want access to those white spells. And that's another incredible point about Amulet is that since I've been on board with the deck, it feels like it's done so many evolutions, so many adaptations, and really has just consistently gotten better. And that speaks to how much was truly unexplored with this archetype. I mean, do you think we're getting to the end of the well now? Are we starting to finally head towards the final builds of what Amulet is going to look like for many years? Or do you think we're still kind of figuring a lot of things out? I mean, every time something changes, it it just feels like it makes so much sense. And, and sometimes it does feel like that this is the end of the road, but I, I think it would be pretty ignorant to think that that's the case. And for the, for the longest time before, like, obviously we were talking about how the deck is much more respected now than, than it was even six months ago. And for the longest time, it, it was truth be told only a handful of people that, that were working on the deck and, and magic is so vast. There's so many, so many different cards and so many different ideas that you can try and I've been playing other formats as well as a competitive magic player, so I can't put all my energy on this deck. And there's only so many things that you you can explore in short, such a short time frame. And the fact that the deck has become more popular and there's more eyes on it, I feel like, as you said, every week there's there's this new idea. And I think it's just doing a lot of good things for the deck. And, and it's definitely helping the people who are committed to the deck by this hive mind, as long as you can filter through all the all the bad ideas, and and that's definitely a skill that you 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 need in order to uh, find the the diamonds in the rough. But I, I think it has definitely helped us in general. Sure, there's always going to be a lot of noise when there's a large group working on a deck, but uh, I, I think that the tournament players are doing a great job of really getting to what matters, getting to what's important, uh, and, and we're going to talk about some of that nonsense that we have kind of cast aside as we get into the next part of our evaluation. But I do want to continue our assessment of the lands. Colony Garden, how unassuming is this land, and actually how important is it? 
in some matchups, it is the best land in your deck, just like it many really of the bullets. Is. It's but wild. It, it is incredibly unassuming, and just like Kabira Crossroads, and Kabira Crossroads and Colony Garden are, are very similar in many respects, but the amount of time that these lands buy you, and, and Colony Garden specifically in a lot of matchups, it's, it's just incredible. If you play it two or three times against a Shadow opponent, that, that could represent 15 life. That's almost double your life total. And not and that, and that's even not mentioning the fact that like if you're playing against a black green x deck and you play your titan and get a kabir cross or a colony garden rather all of a sudden they, they can't liliana edict you and that's like half of their answers to your titan there's, there's just so many things that it does and it's, it's just truly an incredible land i love it as a persistent source of threats against control decks like i can't tell you how many times i've just beaten down blue white decks with slayer stronghold plus colony garden uh, and just constantly using bounce lands to refresh my plant token on the battlefield and wearing them out of resources that way. There's also the attacks under an ensnaring bridge. That's the way of winning a game where you otherwise wouldn't have access to any outs sometimes. Now the main deck is kind of configured to not have that main deck reclamation stage that we previously had. So it gives you a way to play around ensnaring bridge. It's just so many bizarre answers rolled up into this unassuming zero one plant token. Absolutely love the colony garden. Uh, we talked a little bit about our bounce land, so I don't think we need to go back into the Selesnia Sanctuary and Simic Growth Chamber. And we talked about Slayer Stronghold as our combo enabler. Sunhome, Fortress of Legion. Obviously, that's the the big hitter here, the one that gives us access to the turn two kill. Anything else you want to say about Sunhome? It's kind of narrow, right? But you need it to enable those those huge blasts of damage. It is the, the most combo-y card or land in the deck. It, it, it is a land that actually... I've been experimenting with sideboarding out more frequently. I used to never sideboard it out, but it, it's it's something that I've been considering where I, I wouldn't previously. But it, it does some other unassuming things. Like obviously, it's a very strong combo with your Hornet Queen, and like sometimes you you end up drawing either your Slayer Stronghold or your Sun Home against a deck like Humans, and then all of a sudden they can't attack with their Meddling Mage on on Primeval Titan into your either your Sacred Tribe Scout or your Azusa. Like stuff like that uh, comes up fairly frequently, but for the most part, it is very much the, the most combo we land in the deck. Agreed. Talaria West, some more glue. What do you have to say about this card? I mean, this deck could not exist without Talaria West. No, that that land is is everything. It is the core of the deck. I think outside of obviously Primeval Titan, but the, the core of the land package of the deck. And and as you said, with without it, the deck certainly wouldn't exist. It, it just finds you basically everything you need to find. And you, you can you can see that in the way that the deck is constructed. The deck is constructed very much in a way to take advantage of the tutor options that Tolario West gives you with the, the various zero mana spells, finding various bullets, uh, threats and answers for for whatever the game state offers you. It's, it's hard to envision this deck even coming to the table without access to this card. It... If it wasn't for this card, you would have no real persistent source of card advantage. And that's the biggest thing you have to realize with Talaria West is that it's just like doubling all your Primeval Titans. Every Primeval Titan will always bring a friend with it if you want it to. And what other decks in the format can say they can just chain six sixes like Squadron Hawks and all the while pick up infinite value. It's the key to winning fair matchups. It's the key to finding your bullets bullets and unfair matchups it just does absolutely everything you need indispensable card do not leave home without it and then finally we have our vesiva 
I mean, this is kind of a combo-y card too, but it's bigger than that, right? It has all these weird applications and it allows double uses of things like our Colony Gardens and our Kabira Crossroads. Anything you want to say about this card? You want to talk about some stranger applications you've seen of Vesima? I think everyone who's played this deck for an extended period of time has has a good Vesima story. It's a... It's a land that comes up frequently, like you said, to copy your one of lands to get extra uses out of them when you don't always have the luxury of bouncing it to your hand and playing it as a land drop. But it, it actually copies your opponent's lands very frequently. Against the control decks, you actually copy Colonnade pretty frequently. Like Vesuva plus Sacred Tribe Scout uh, facing down a Colonnade is actually a real threat against a control deck because you can keep attacking them for four and then saving it with your soccer tribe scale when they go to path it and then putting it back into play. It, it copies flip descantas. There was a period of time in modern where you could copy like a loot house, a desolate lighthouse. It, it just has a lot of application and you can like, you can play it as like an ink moth nexus to, to block an ink moth out of infect. It just, it just does a lot of, a lot of things and is it's very useful to have as a one of for sure. Yeah, if nothing else, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, remember to check your opponent's lands for Vesiva targets. It comes up so, so much, and there's often some really sneaky good ones sitting on that side of the battlefield. Before we move on to the sideboard, let's talk about some cards that aren't presently in your main deck. And I think we have to start with the one that I get asked about more than any other card. Do you know what card I'm about to say? Oh, yes, yes. The, the the queen dino herself. Of course. This is a comma. This is by far the most polarizing card among amulet players. There are people who love it, would absolutely never play the deck without it. I think it is absolute stone cold garbage. Edgar, where do you fall? I fall in exactly the same camp as you, Brian. And there, there has been periods of time very recently, uh, again, where some very good magic players have been advocating for this card and it, it, it has led to conversations amongst me and Daryl and, and Matthew where we, we start thinking to ourselves, like, are, are we, are we the crazy ones? Are, are we, are we in the wrong here somehow? In my current opinion, I, I still believe that that is a completely unnecessary card to put in your deck an active liability even, and, and something that isn't even in my amulet box. If, if, if that's a strong enough opinion. Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I'll tell you, I don't own a foil copy of this card, so that lets you know <laughs> where I'm at with it. Uh, I have never played it in my list. I think that needing this card just points to you not properly utilizing your Titans and possibly building your deck incorrectly. You know, if you had the right options in your 75, you would not need Zakama to do the things it does. The arguments I hear for it, no one has ever made a compelling argument beyond like, when you play this card, it is very good. Well, no kidding. It costs nine <laughs> mana. Like there aren't many cards I could find for nine mana that aren't going to be just absolutely dominating. That's the way nine mana spells work. But the problem is you will not have access to nine mana in a bunch of instances. And if you do, you should be able to find something else to do. You should be able to transmute a Talaria West and go get another Primeval Titan or, you know, get your Hornet Queen and lock up the battlefield. I, I just think Zakama is complete overkill. There's no realistic way to cast it without having first cast a Primeval Titan. 
And that's a huge problem and a huge distinguishing point between Zakama and something like, say, Hornet Queen, where it is realistic to get to seven mana as your first big threat. I, I don't think getting to nine is really feasible. Now, it's gotten closer with Coalition Relic, probably. We have a little bit more big mana in the deck now. Don't take that as me being like, okay, now I'm ready to consider Zakama. I still am of the opinion this is a classic win more and just a card you do not need to include. People people have asked me to sign their Zakamas all the time. Like it's, it's crazy how much people really seize on to strong opinions about this card, but I just am not sold and no one has even come close to selling me thus far. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat and... I, I've been prone to hyperbole in my life. Uh, I'm a magic player. I think most of us are. And I, I don't want to go as far as to say that the card is training wheels, but it, it, it almost feels that way where, as you said, a lot of the a lot of the situations people bring up where, where it could help, it, it, it feels to me like you could achieve the same result a, a different way the vast majority of the time. And, and that's what makes me think that it's, it's, not, it's not worth it. Yeah, right there with you. So... Here's an interesting card, and I don't know if if I should take credit for this, but when I first picked up this deck, I was immediately repulsed by Explore. And I started telling everyone who would listen, please, for the love of God, stop playing this card. And finally, we have gotten to the point where Explore seems like a distant relic of the past. I haven't seen any floating into deck lists for a very long time. What do you think happened with Explorer? How did we get kind of hoodwinked into playing it for so long? Do you ever see a time where we could go back to Explorer? Did something just fundamentally change? Did I just come along at the right time where it was actually uh, a new format and it became right to abandon Explorer where previously it was a good card? I think it's a combination of both. I, I think that you can take adequate credit for hammering it into into my brain specifically and then I kind of relayed it off to to some other people but I, I think that there there could theoretically exist a format that Explore is a powerful tool. I think it is a very powerful card against like the Black Green X decks of the format and such. Right. But I think for the longest time, the main problem was that we didn't really know what the better car option was. And, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about there just not being enough eyes on the deck and not enough ideas. And... Originally, when we we cut it, we cut it for Trinket Mage, and and Trinket Mage was a card that basically none of us have thought of until until someone brought it up. And I, I'm not exactly quite sure who, and I, I think that we kind of just became complacent for for lack of a better word, and mm. e- even even if it was correct for a while, it was definitely at the point where it was no longer correct, but we had just not figured out how to fix it. Well, I understand, right? Like on its face, it certainly seems like the card should be good in the deck, right? Additional lands, drawing cards, like, sure, that's exactly what I signed up for. Yeah, and it's like a low opportunity cost too, right? And and, and I have echoes of that in my head where where we would just say to each other, it's just it's just so low downside. And it, it's it's nice with Sacred Tribe Scout because it bridges the gap to your Titan and it actually shaves a turn off of your off your Titan turn if you if you go Scout into Explorer. And that's that is a relevant upside, I think coalition relic or or any of the other cards that you could possibly play in that slot just kind of do that a little bit better right there's a lot of better options and also i think there was it's easy to look at the upside of the card and certainly those upsides do exist i wouldn't deny those for a second there's 
play lines that in general are extremely, extremely aided by Explore. But more often than not, I just found the card either rotting in my hand because there was no point in my mana curve where I wanted to cast it, or it was just irrelevant. Like it was trying to draw me out of difficult situations and it almost trapped me into some bad hands in a lot of instances, I think, by having that cantrip in my deck. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and and actually that was part of the big the big eureka that I had where I, I wasn't really keeping hands that were banking on Explorer because I knew they were bad. I, I knew deep down mm-hmm. that they they weren't keepable and and I think if you're at that point you should you should try to find something better. And I'm glad we did. Yeah, me too. So let's talk about a card we briefly mentioned before. And I'm I'm real interested to hear your opinion here because I want to know exactly when in the future I should be looking to deploy this card. It's Trinket Mage. And Trinket Mage has kind of been doing good work over the past few months. And I think it's only really in the last couple of weeks where we've again gotten away from Trinket Mage. Why has that been the case recently? So I think Trinket Mage was really good pre-KCI banning because the format was very flush in two different types of decks. Uh, there were There were the decks that were like such as KCI, like the combo decks that having an amulet or, and especially the second copy of amulet was just very important. And mm. the other side of the spectrum of matchups were these aggressive, disruptive creature decks, uh, mainly humans that were very weak to engineered explosives. And the, the combination of these two styles of decks just made Trinkamage this like kind of perfect, middle card that let you go in either direction depending on what you wanted to do and if the format ever gets to a point like that again i think it's really good but right now the format has kind of deviated away from those extremes and is also the the advent of blood moon coming back into format is another reason but it's more a format where like a good turn four titan is is good enough not good enough in, in like a bad sense like like that's kind of like what you want to do in a lot of matchups and, and coalition relic kind of does that better yeah, I totally agree with you. Trinket Mage is one of my all-time favorite cards. So it was with a bit of hesitance that I pried them out of my deck, but your assessment is spot on. And I, I don't think those cards are as important as they previously were. And we're okay with our pace being altered a little bit and uh, you know, finding those particular cards maybe a turn later than we previously would have. Next card I'm going to talk about, I think it's pretty simple. Emrakul, The Promised End. I think this was some cool tech for a minute when it felt like blue-white was absolutely everywhere, and it really made that matchup feel unlosable. But that deck's basically gone now, and that's really what Emrakul was here to do. Is that fair? Yeah, that's th- that was the main reason. And I think part of it, too, was that I think that matchup is actually very interesting. I, I actually really enjoy playing that matchup, and I- I've play-tested play- it a little bit with my, my teammate, Gabe Nassif. And I think there's a lot going on, and it is a very difficult matchup to play. And it is kind of nice when you have this this card that almost auto wins you the matchup that's going to go so long. But ultimately, I just don't think it's very necessary. Obviously, if if that deck and like these mid range black green decks became more popular, I th- I think it would be a powerful card to bring back because its power is very clear. It's 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 going to win you the vast majority of games where you put it on the stack, but it. I just think it's not very much worth the slot. I'm with you there. Another weirdo card that started to pop up recently, Hivemind. And it really makes me laugh to see this card come back because the first time I ever remember hearing anything about Amulet was, 
oh, I don't even know now. We're talking probably seven years ago, right at the advent of the modern format. And it was one of the first times Jerry and I worked together. And I remember we had a big group chat and I want to say Raptor was involved. And I I think I remember like Glenn Jones in the group chat possibly, but a a bunch of people really trying to put something together, make a deck out of nothing. There, There was no amulet deck at that point. And what we had was admittedly terrible, but it was like summer bloom amulet primeval Titan. And then hive mind was a tremendous, tremendous part of the deck. It was kind of our a plan to be honest. And now I'm starting to see Hivemind pa- start to pop up again. What do you think has caused this resurgence in Hivemind? Where do you fall on the card? I think it's a card that we kind of almost forgot about for the longest time. I think it is worse, obviously, than it was back in the Summer Bloom era. You have less natural packs in your deck. You, you also play it slightly slower, so there's more decks that can pay for, for your first pack, requiring you to s- assemble this three-card combo of Hivemind plus two packs. But I think it's a card that is very good in a lot of matchups, and and is possibly worth more than the current lists are giving it credit for. There there are people who play this like different Lotus Bloom uh, version of Amulet that are pretty yep. high on on Hive Mind because they they have they have more packs naturally in their deck. I think is the biggest reason they play a slaughter pack, a second pack negation, like more akin to to the Summer Bloom decks of of past. But I think it is. It is definitely a powerful card in a lot of matchups, but I, I just think it's not really what the deck is about anymore. I think the deck is very much more of a toolbox deck now, and I, I don't really find necessary in a lot of matchups to, to need this backup plan. It's very nice in against decks that can go over the top of you or can lock you out of the, the attack step, but I, I don't think that those are frequent enough in the format in order to advocate the slot, but I, I could definitely see that changing in the near future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that card does over the next few months if it starts to gain some more traction. Another card just starting to gain some traction, Serum Visions. Canister actually advocating a build of Amulet Titan. Going back to Serum Visions, and and this was a card that was in the deck at some point in the past, as many Simic cards have been at this point now. We've kind of tried them all. But trying to get a little bit more consistency into what is generally regarded as a somewhat inconsistent deck what do you think about the addition of Serum Visions? Ooh, well, this is a difficult one. And and consistency is, I think, a, a subject in, in Magic, and especially in Modern, that, in my opinion, is like pretty misunderstood. I think it's a pretty difficult concept to, to really like articulate properly because like what is it what is exactly does it mean to be consistent? Because if you're like if you're consistently mediocre, is that a good thing? I don't think so. And I think that it is obvious what Serum Visions does for the deck. It, it, it lets you cobble together these medium draws and, and, and maybe make something out of them. But I think that there's a lot of cost to putting that card in your deck that is maybe not immediately obvious and, and definitely not as trivial as some are making it out to be. Because you need to do certain things to your mana base in order to incorporate all the extra blue sources. And as we were speaking to at length earlier, the mana base is very much a part of the the core utility of the deck and once you start cutting bullets although maybe you are increasing your win percentage by having more functional hands you are de- decreasing your win percentages in certain spots so it's it's about finding that right balance and 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 determining whether or not that that is actually improving your matchups in in the aggregate 
it's 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 difficult, and I haven't I haven't formulated a conclusive opinion on the card yet. It, it's something that I'm meaning to try in the near future a little bit more because originally the list had serum visions. When when the deck first came back, it had serum visions, but it was actually something right. that I cut in order to make the mana base better, in order to incorporate more forests after after Field of Rune was printed, for example. And going back to it can make sense, but I think that it. I think putting that card in your deck is a poor substitution for just mulliganing better, if that makes sense. And I know that Canister was talking about how he wants to keep seven more often, but I think that mulliganing with this deck is is a privilege. And 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 the first mulligan almost seems free to me. I, I don't keep that strong data, but I have used that that magic online replay tool before just to check my stats a couple times and I think I mulligan my seven with this deck like almost a quarter of the time. And I think that's just something that you get to do that and that is not necessarily a bad thing. And and I think that what Serum Visions will do to the deck is just increase the amount of hands that you keep that are just kind of medium when you could just strive for, for better in a format like modern. I think that's well said. And one of the biggest lessons in magic I ever received at- I wish I could remember who to credit, but unfortunately I'm old and these things fall out of my brain, but it was someone really redefining the terms of mulliganing for me. They said, you don't have to mulligan, you get to mulligan. And I think if you start thinking about mulliganing in modern that way, it really unlocks a lot for you and is something just key to understand, especially when it comes to Amulet Titan. To that effect, why don't we talk for a second about openers? Because, I mean, this is like the first hurdle you have to get over, right? You you draw your first seven ever with Amulet, you look at it, and you go, I have absolutely no idea what I'm looking at. That is everyone's response to their first seven cards with Amulet. I promise you are not alone in feeling that way. It's very hard to decipher exactly what your hand is capable of. And for me, one of the things I really clung to as I was first learning the deck was the principle. And I don't remember because there were two articles that were really foundational for me beginning to understand the deck. And one was by you and one was by Ari. And I don't remember which one of you proposed the idea that you basically needed three things. You needed ramp, payoff, and land. And as long as you had those three things, you would be okay. Does that sound like you, or is that maybe an Ari thing? Uh, I definitely wrote something about mulliganing. I, I don't remember if it was exactly that, but I, I did talk briefly in one of my articles about like the the core turn that that your your hand is capable of presenting mm-hmm. an unbeatable board state, and, and I and I think that that's what you, what you need to look for in opening hands with this deck. I, I like to do a check where like. If, if I draw nothing, what can my hand do? And then how far away am I from increasing that by one turn or by two turns? And it's about mm-hmm. it's about weighing that and then deciding which turn is acceptable based on what you're playing against or, or what information you have. And in the, in the dark, I, I tend to do turn four on the play, turn three on the draw for my sevens and, and use that as a baseline. 
That sounds like a fine baseline to me. One of the key things you must, must, must understand with this deck, you are not looking for a combination of land and spells. That is not good enough. A a lot of decks, you just open your seven. If you have lands and spells, you're going to go to the races with that hand. That's not what we're doing here. And just lands and spells is not good enough. You need to have a clear plan in your hand. And I like the way you describe it, thinking about your turn, your primeval titan turn, essentially. Um, and how much your hand can potentially improve. And, you know, there's a lot of spots where maybe you will keep a hand that, as it exists, does nothing. But you think about how many outs you have. I remember a, a hand in particular I kept at GP Portland where it was a hand that did absolutely nothing but had something like 14 outs to a turn two kill. And very, I mean, you very happily keep that hand in every single instance. I was also up against Tron, so I was super incentivized to keep a hand like that. Uh, and I missed. But 100% happy with the keep. You just have to figure out how your hand can evolve, how it can improve. I think in this instance, like any bounce land, plus I had a uh, Ancient Stirrings to search for it. So I had to look at like the top 14 or 15 cards in my deck. Right. And and that kind of goes back to the, to the whole consistency thing as well, where... I actually think the deck is incredibly consistent, first of all. And I think a lot of the the misconception comes from those hands that you're talking about, where there are a lot of hands with this deck where you're just so close to, to essentially winning the game, and it just looks like you did nothing for the entire game. And mm-hmm. and, if, and from an outside yeah. perspective, it just it just looks like you, you your deck is completely non-functional. But if you compare right. that to, to other decks in the format, like... If, if you're playing Black Green Rock, for instance, and you mulligan a six and you sigh and you scry to the bottom and you go turn two Tarmogoyf, turn three Tarmogoyf, you attack your opponent a few times and then and then you die and you only got them to eight life. I think a lot of people will will not bat an eye at that, but you're essentially doing the same thing, right? You're you're you've essentially achieved nothing. It just feels like you did more, and and I think that's a lot of a lot of the stigma that comes from a deck like this. Yeah, when it fails, it fails spectacularly, right? right? And meanwhile, you're watching the game on coverage and Amulet player sits there, does nothing for four turns and dies. Well, that doesn't convey the fact that if they drew any bounce land, they win the game on the spot, right? It's it's just completely hidden from an observer. And I I think that also has played a role in the deck not being as widely adopted as you would expect. And you and I talked a little bit about this this weekend the deck was routinely failing on camera <laughs> this weekend. Uh, Will Pulliam had a particularly tough match where his deck just didn't do anything. And I'm sure in every single game he played, he was just a sniff away from completely decimating his opponent and winning the game on the spot. But sometimes you just aren't going to hit your outs, but you need to understand them and play towards them. And once you start doing that, you'll realize how often you just hit what you need because you have so much redundancy in your deck. Yeah, there's so many tutors, and there and there's so many virtually the same effect. So it's it's very easy that you can put yourself in these situations where you're 75 percent to get there, and you're you're going to take those every time. Hmm. One hundred percent. Let's talk a little bit about sideboarding. Now we've covered the main deck inside and out. We've talked about potential ways to rebuild. Uh, we've given you some pointers for how to choose whether or not to mulligan. Very broad ones, admittedly, but you really just have to get your feet wet, dive right in, start making those mulligan decisions yourself. Uh, but when it comes to sideboarding, let's start by talking about the sideboard that Daryl played 
in Cincinnati. And I'll just go ahead and read it real quick. We're looking at one engineered explosives, one chameleon colossus, one Ramonep excavator, one reclamation sage, one tireless tracker, three negate, four path to exile, two primal command, and one tragic arrogance. I want to talk about each of these cards individually and just have you give us a real quick explanation of kind of what they're there for, what decks they might come in against. But I want to get to a broader point first. And I I think this is a point where you and I maybe differ somewhat. Over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, an increase in these big spells, the two primal commands, the one tragic arrogance, primal command kind of being the hot tech right now. On my end, I think there's a tremendous, tremendous burden for these type of spells to enter the deck because these are the cards you can't find. You can't get them with Talaria West. You cannot get them with Ancient Stirrings. Primeval Titan isn't going to search them up. All these kind of redundancy engines that we keep talking about fail in the case of these cards. And we're not playing Serum Vision, so we aren't affecting our draws in any way. You're basically just asking to draw these off the top. And by playing these, you're giving up a slot where you could put a tutorable card that you gain a lot of access to uh, via the composition of your deck. So there's a huge, huge opportunity cost. So I just want to talk a little bit about the theory generally when you're choosing to include cards like Primal Command and Tragic Arrogance. And in fact, we can start our discussion there. Tell me why you think those cards are particularly well positioned right now, what you're using them against, and did you consider the huge, huge trade-off that you're making by not playing a card that's tutorable in those slots? Yeah, definitely definitely considered that. Uh, I'm going to start with the Tragic Arrogance because that one's one's a little bit easier to explain. That, That one is almost entirely a concession to the War Prison deck, and it right. is not something that we really played in the past. We, we never really used the slot in the sideboard in, in that in that way before, but we felt like with that deck increasing in popularity, and the way we had the deck b- before, it was actively a bad matchup, because we did, we just didn't have the right tools. Like I, I actually lost to Dom in the finals of a Star Cities Classic, because I, I didn't have access to a card like this, I think. The problem is that they have so many needle effects and, and and snaring bridge that your regular way of breaking through the engineered explosives and the and the reclamation stage isn't isn't reliable enough and and additionally because of welding jar against a deck like lantern it was good enough because you could break their problematic piece and then and then poke a hole and get through but the war prison deck is a different animal so what we did is we incorporated the tragic arrogance as kind of a one-two punch with the Tyler's Tracker that I, I'm going to skip ahead to because it lets you patch for the Tyler's Tracker. And since they have no real way to kill you outside of maybe a couple copies of Tezzeret, it lets you churn through your deck and find your one copy of Tragic Arrogance in order to completely break open the board state and, and win the game that way. And the reason we went with Tragic Arrogance this week over something like Consulate Crackdown or Horacle's Recall is just because it has just minor overlap in like the humans matchup as well so this was more a case of desperation right Right. you see a hole that the usual toolbox can't fill and you found a way around that and you know the tireless tracker ad in addition with this makes a lot of sense and i i think that's good responsible deck building where you're like okay it's not fair of my deck it's not fair of me to ask my deck to just produce this card naturally i need some way of getting to it so respect for that for sure. So that brings us then to the primal commands. Two copies here. And where I can buy tragic arrogance as an answer to a problem that was somewhat overwhelming and very difficult to respond to 
Primal Command feels a little bit more wishy-washy to me. It, it's just like, it obviously does a ton of things. It's super modal, as all commands are, but it doesn't seem to be hard targeting anything. Talk to me about what got you to Primal Command and why you think this is a necessary card for the sideboard to have right now. Yeah, this is actually a card that I think we went slightly over the top with. Um, the pre- the previous week in Philadelphia, we actually had one copy in our main deck over where the Hornet Queen is. And it, mm-hmm. it was a card that impressed us the entire week in testing. And then also in the tournament itself, uh, both Daryl and Dilk said that it was really relevant for them. But we kind of got in, in, in our own head a little bit. And Daryl had the idea of post-board being able to board it in and a lot of the mid-range and control matchups as kind of just this bridge card that has a lot of incidental utility in this format like we were talking about like shuffling the graveyard is is really relevant in a lot of matchups and just being able to tutor extra titans is also relevant but i think that as you said it's probably just not good enough at what it does as a sideboard card and it is it is a little nice that games tend to slow down after board giving you a little bit more time to cast a card like that but it's not that effective, although it is very nice sometimes. I don't. I don't think it's by any means gospel, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I can buy that. I, it's kind of like jack of all trades, master of none, right? And I think that's fine. I I'm just inclined to believe that the cost of it not being a tutorable option is a little high. Something like obstinate Bayloth, where you're getting life gain, you have a card to. Uh, instant speed tutor for against Liliana's. So there's some matchup overlap there. And certainly it's not as exciting of a card in a bunch of spots, but I I think just the reliable access to it might be worth a little bit more than something like Primal Command. Obviously always going to depend on the particular metagame that you're facing in the moment. So with those kind of controversial big spells out of the way, Let's talk about the small spells that I think are basically indisputable at this point. And we'll talk about the reason why the deck moved to white for Path to Exile. Talk about how much this card has meant to post-board plans, particularly as they relate to the Arclight Phoenix decks. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's pretty integral to the way that the deck is built. And I, I think that there are a lot of matchups where it is pretty difficult to try to execute your game plan reliably either your opponent is faster than you or they're going to be more disruptive and you're not going to be able to assemble the two or three cards in tandem with each other in order to do so and i think the path to exile is the type of card that lets you really bridge the gap and and just happens to line up really well against a lot of the decks in the format like you said phoenix it lines up really well against shadow humans we used to play different mobile spells in that slot, Abrade, Dismember, but Path is mm-hmm. is nice that it obviously it exiles Arc Life Phoenix, that comes up sometimes, but being one mana against Thing in the Ice in a format where th- I feel like Thing in the Ice just flips on turn three every time. I don't know if your experience has been the same. <laughs> it does feel that <laughs> way, yeah. And, and the difference between taking 10 or 13 on that turn and only taking three or six is is incredible. It's it's multiple turns that you, you have to to continue ramping to to get to that titan turn and just being able to do so for one mana is 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 very powerful it's also really relevant against the the death shadow deck just as a way to to answer their their very few threats they they're, they're going to spend so many resources disrupting you and when they when they cast a thought seize and they see like an azusa and a path to exile most of the time they have to take the azusa and then all of a sudden you have multiple turns in order to 
to combat whatever threat that they may have. Yeah, it's almost like this weird counter spell, right? Where you're just like, you use it to buy yourself a bunch of extra time. Like, so you can shift into this control role and extend the game a little bit. Just its existence in your hand alters the way your opponent has to play. That's a really cool wrinkle. One of the things that came up a bunch in coverage was how often it was correct to bring in all four copies of Path to Exile. Can you think of matches where you only bring in a couple copies? Or if it's one, is it one of those things where if you need one, you probably need all four? For the most part, I, I bring in four or zero. I think that the way the deck is currently built, it allows you to bring one or two copies in against Dredge just because it's better than some of your really bad options. But I'm not even confident that mm. that's correct. And for, for the for the most part, I can't think of a, a, a matchup where I, I would want like two or three of them. It's just so good at what it does, and and you basically don't mind drawing them in multiples when when you when you when you want to board them in. Yeah, well, that's the sign you certainly have the correct sideboard card in that slot where you want the full four. So I, I I'm inclined to agree with you. It's hard for me to see a lot of situations where you just want to go halfway if they have the threats worth pathing. Make sure you always have access to it. Uh, that brings us to negate. This is certainly another contested slot. This has been Spell Pierce at times. I've seen Swan Song. Uh, maybe that's going back a ways, but certainly was a period where Swan Song was the inclusion here. Why Negate now? I think Negate gets the nod over Spell Pierce in the current meta, just just because of the, the type of decks you want to bring it in against. Spell Pierce was better when uh, the decks you were boarding it in against were more often these fast combo decks. I'm thinking KCI where you, you don't always have the luxury of having two mana, especially if they play like a turn three KCI on the play, for instance, because so many tap lands in the deck as well. I think Negate is much, much better against uh, Control, is the, main, is the main reason, because against Control, you're often trying to play this very slow game, but the problem with playing a super slow game is that you're very weak to Jace the Mind Sculptor and Teferi, and Negate just means that you won't ever get in this spot where they can resolve it, th- resolve their Planeswalker through Spell Pierce and then take over the game that way. And it also means that although it you don't necessarily always want to fight over it, it is nice that Negate can nab a path to exile and then matchups where Spell Pierce usually can't. And another reason why I think Negate is a little bit better, and it's less relevant now because the deck is basically non-existent, but there was a period of time where Storm was basically the only combo deck, and Negate is significantly better against Storm than uh, Spell Pierce is, especially when we have Path to Exile as a removal spell instead of a Braid, because I don't even board in Path to Exile in that matchup where I would have boarded in a Braid, but that just means that they're always untapping with their with their Familiar, and when they untap with their Familiar and they play their third land and they play their Desperate Ritual and you're staring at a Spell Pierce, you're, you're in, for, in for a bad time, so... Yeah, nightmare scenario. And I've had that come up in the Storm matchup, actually, uh, in the GP I just mentioned, GP Portland, where I just had these spell pierces in my deck and they were so ineffectual. And if spell pierce isn't good there, where is it actually good? So I I am also on board with Negate right now. uh, And I think the interaction with Path is a great point as well. If you're giving your opponents mana, you can't really afford to let them play around your spell pierce either. So now we come to the tutorable cards that are presently in the deck and only five right now. I'd say that's a low amount. Usually there's more than that. And maybe, you know, if you're looking to back away from primal command a little bit, there will be more going into next week. 
we're looking at Tireless Tracker, Reclamation Sage, Ramanap, Excavator, Chameleon, Colossus, and the Engineered Explosives. Let's go through each one individually. Engineered Explosives, answers for everything. When your opponent's getting wide, I'm assuming is where you mostly want the third copy. Yeah, when your opponent's going wide against the card Death Shadow, it's good. I also bring it in against Thing in the Ice uh, in that matchup. It, it's basically good in any matchup where you're trying to turn into this control deck, like you said earlier. It's just being able to clean up everything is just so nice, and uh, you, can, you can really just buy yourself a lot of time, and you kind of want to naturally draw a lot of copies of them. Makes sense. Chameleon Colossus, Death Shadow, Green Black, anywhere else you like this card? It's... It basically comes in against those two. I also board it in against control decks just because it's mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a middle of the ground threat that they have to path to exile and it is threatening to take the game over on its own. But the fact that it's a Chameleon Colossus is very much uh, because of the Death Shadow matchup. If it wasn't for Death Shadow, it would definitely be something else. It would be like a second tracker or an obstinate bailout or a threat to us, something like that. But right. I, I think that the amount of impact that this one cyborg slot has in the Death Shadow matchup just makes it so worth it. It, it. I think on its own, it adds double digits percentages to your to your matchup because it just turns on all your Summoner's packs. And, and just the way the matchup plays out, there, there's this dynamic where they're they're frequently tapping out on, on the third turn, either to Thoughtseize you or to play a threat because they, they don't think that you can cast your Haymaker yet. And then when you put a, a Chameleon Clause, you pack for Chameleon Clauses and put it on the battlefield, the game's basically over. It's wild that we get access to Silver Bullets like that because our deck is mostly tutors and these weirdo cards can come and just completely turn a matchup on its head. Uh, but yeah, my experience with Chameleon Colossus, it's been a slam dunk in those matchups and basically unbeatable for them. I think your double-digit assessment is probably spot on. Ramanap Excavator is a card we already talked about a bunch. I already gushed about it. Uh, it comes in and out of the sideboard, I think. Why was it present going into this week? What matchups do you really like it in? Uh, I've played one main before, quite frankly, because I think you can find utility for Ramanap Excavator if you want to. It just does so many different things. Uh, when Tron's a big part of the meta, I will often have Ramanap Excavator main. Presently, I do like one in the sideboard. I, w- I wouldn't go as far as a main deck one right now. But talk about the matchups where you're bringing in this card and what it's accomplishing in those matchups. Yeah, so Ramanap is this kind of split card almost where it's this mid-range card advantage card that also just happens to have utility against the other big mana strategies. So like you said, against Tron and the Mirror, it's obviously very good. But I think that it's, it is very underappreciated how good at, it is at combating the way that a lot of decks beat you. And, and that's the main reason it's included in the sideboard. And the, the main matchup I'm thinking about for that is actually the, the Black-Green X matchup, where I think it's better mm-hmm. than Tyler's Tracker, even though they do Agreed. similar things in those matchups. But the ways that you actually lose to that deck, Ramanap is really good at combating that, and, and that's kind of why I like that in, in, in the sideboard. Whereas against like a blue-white deck, perhaps Tyler's Tracker is a little bit better, but having the split just gives you that extra versatility. Yeah, and I, I think Excavator is also fine in that matchup too. You oh, know, it is you good, need yes. to protect your, your Cavern of Souls. Now you get all this resiliency to Field of Ruin. So it has utility there, even if it isn't quite as good as Tireless Tracker. I do like that you have access to both here. And why don't we go ahead and talk about Tireless Tracker now? Tireless Tracker is a card that was actually absent from the cyborg for a long time. And we, we brought it back as the one-two punch with the Tragic Arrogance, but it's also just good with the rise of black green x and and it is one of your best cards against control as well 
Yeah, it's nice to have a persistent source of card advantage, right? Not something you'd think this deck would necessarily have access to. Thankfully, green spells have basically gone off the charts in the past few years and can do absolutely everything. So now we get all this card advantage stapled on. It feels like a planeswalker in a three mana package sometimes. Yeah, and it makes things really awkward for your opponent. Like if your opponent ever has to pass out some of that, they're in a horrible spot. Obviously, it's power with uh, Azusa Lost, but Seeking can't, can't go without saying as well. Oh, for sure. Finally, last slot. Reclamation Sage. Here's our catch-all. It feels like this comes in in virtually every matchup since almost everyone has a way to disrupt you or has some reliance on artifacts or enchantments. Consideration to putting this back in the main deck right now? I know it was a a non-starter not to have access to this for a while and with the death of KCI and decreased amount of artifact-based decks running around, it has trickled back into the sideboard. How's it been treating you there? Uh, I think it's fine in the sideboard right now the, the reason i liked it in the main deck for the longest time is because it was a very low opportunity cost the way the format looked at the time there was basically no deck outside of i believe black green x where there wasn't at least something to target now sometimes that thing was like uh an aether vial out of humans so something something pretty low impact but it, it never felt like you would naturally draw it and like really really dislike it like it was really actively causing you to lose the game but now in the current iteration of the format i think that there are too many decks where that that is likely to be the case like it's not a good game one card against is a phoenix obviously it's not good against shadow so i i think that having it in, in your sideboard instead is, is probably correct and and also part of it is that we now have better cards in the main deck Car cards that we'd like more in the main deck compared to before i think when we were playing it in the, in the main we were still on explorers so it's kind of more of a reason to put it in there right as the card quality goes up there's going to be some squeeze without a doubt i know this is difficult because we're trying to cover basically the infinite swath of modern matchups that do exist but talk to me a little bit about what you're looking to cut I know that an easy starting point is looking at your utility lands and seeing if there's any you can possibly get rid of. How low will you go on your land count? Will you cut three lands in some instances? Do you pretty much max out at two? How do you feel about trimming down your lands? I go. I cut three lands against the very hyper-aggressive combo decks, but besides that, I, I will never go below 26 total. Uh, in any matchup. So so against something like Storm, I will cut like the Kabira, the Colony, and the Ghost Quarter. But uh, for the most part, I think that 26 is basically the, the floor for, for your mana base. You're still trying to hit 6 mana in almost every matchup. But I, I think you are correct where in almost every matchup, there is at least one land that you can cut very easily. So if we aren't looking at lands to cut, where do the targets start after that? Can you give some general rules? I know I'm asking for a lot because there's so much differentiation between modern decks, but you know, sometimes we're looking to cut our amulet vigors, amulet of vigors. Sometimes we're looking to cut our Azusas. Can you give Ooh, kind of one. broad guidelines? <laughs> never cut Azusa? No. So actually that's funny because I think that Azusa wow. is the only card in the main deck outside of maybe like Simic Growth Chamber or whatever, some of the lands. It's the only spell in the main deck that I, I never cut. I think every other card at least gets shaved. Even Primeval Titan at least gets shaved in some numbers, but Azusa, Azusa no. That's interesting. I still have setups where, I, where I've cut it recently. I think it's just your best ramp spell in almost every matchup. And like it's just the difference in games where you have Azusa and don't is just so clear so often. And, and I think that especially with the advent of Coalition Relic, I, I'm, I'm much sooner inclined to cart that card than I am to cut Azusa. 
Okay, that's fair. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of outdated plans before Coalition Relic was around, and now that there's multiple three mana ram spells, I could see always starting there. What you, what you're saying makes sense. But yeah, in in general, in, in the matchups where you're looking to turn into a control deck, I think that it is okay to cut some of your ramp. And by okay, I mean like I, I actively cut some of my ramp. Wh- which ramp depends on which matchup it is. So like against humans, for instance, I'll cut the Coalition Relics. It's bad against Thalia. They're not really targeting your creature-based ramp, so you, you don't have to worry about that stuff dying. But against like Black Green X, I'll cut the Sacred Tribe Scouts because they're so they're so prone to death. I would rather have more difficult to deal with ramp, like Amulet of Vigor or Azusa. You get the ramp right away before they can deal with it. Yep. But but in all those matchups where I'm I'm turning into this control deck, I think that I I do cut a decent amount of ramp at least, especially when you're bringing in the Path to Exiles. Yeah, and this is going to be hard to kind of wrap your head around as a new amulet player, but I I think you just have to get in there. You have to make some mistakes. You have to understand how your role is changing in all of these matchups and what you're ultimately looking to accomplish, and that will inform what cuts you should be looking to make. Sometimes they'll be obvious. You know, sometimes you will know you don't need Pact of Negation to protect a certain creature. Sometimes you know you can trim down on Primeval Titans because you would rather have Hornet Queen or Chameleon Colossus. And other times it's just like, how can I best be a control deck? How can I best answer what my opponent does? Because they are actually claiming the role of aggressor here. And all those instances They'll come with time. They'll come with practice. But one specific matchup I want to get into, both in terms of pre-sideboard games and post-sideboard games, is the Is It Phoenix matchup. Because this is the boogeyman of the format right now. And I know from talking with you, you feel that Amulet Titan is fundamentally in a position of power against these Is It decks. Talk about why. Talk about what you're doing in game ones that makes you feel that way. And talk about sideboarding plans in that matchup as well. Yeah, so I think in general, the onus is on the the Phoenix deck to, in game one specifically, to present one of their, their, their above average draws. I think that the average amulet draw in game one can beat the average Phoenix draw the vast majority of the time. Even the, even the games where you're taking 10 damage on the third turn, I find that those games are like pretty beatable a lot of the time. And it's only the ones that above that, that are, are, are losing. And once you get to that, once you get to that mindset where you, I feel favored game one, I think the onus is really on the, is a Phoenix deck to, have Blood Moon both post-word games because I I think once we introduce Path to Exile to the mix and the extra engineered explosives and the Hornet Queen when that's in the sideboard, once we have access to those tools, I think the onus really becomes on them hard locking you with, with Blood Moon in order to win the match. And when they have to do that twice most of the time, I think that that overall makes the, the matchup favored. Game one is is definitely more of a race than than postboard and and that just comes down to the number of answers we have it it is difficult to stabilize against the thing in the ice it's even if we have access to playing primeval titan on the third turn on the play for instance there's no real good way to to prevent ourselves from taking a lot of damage if they manage to flip it because we, we can't get a colony garden for instance there's no way to sneak that in but we do have access to the two copies of engineer explosives and if you ever get to a game state where you have you play Titan, you don't immediately die. It becomes very difficult because even if they have something like a crackling trick, you can set up an engineer explosive for four. And then it's just about getting those two or three attack steps that you need uh, in order to win the game because they don't really have 
much of a way to stop you from continuing your chain. After, right. after board, we get access to the Reclamation Sage, and since we have Coalition Relic and Forest, that's, that's a real answer to the Blood Moon. And Path to Exile on your own creature comes up against uh, in order to find your forest, but it also means that we're much less likely to die to Thing in the Ice or, or flipped early. Mm-hmm. So the, the matchup really re- revolves around Blood Moon after board. So they're gonna they're gonna have their abrades, which can be really annoying. So sometimes it's very important post board to sandbag your Coalition Relic if it's your only green source uh, for the turn that you play Reclamation Sage. But in terms of sideboarding, for instance, Sacred Tribe Scout is a card that we board out a lot in matchups where it's going to die very easily. And since we have access to Coalition Relic now, we we still feel like we have the appropriate density of ramp in those matchups. So Sacred Tribe Scout and Pact of Negation are the cards that come out in that matchup since they don't really do enough. And they're they're kind of easily killed. And since we're boarding in the Path to Exiles, we're not worried about not interacting on the early turns as much. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Wh- what about Walking Ballista? Does that stick in the no. deck and post-board games? So Walking Ballista is strange because I think in general it's not worth it. There are some some people who tried to surgical you after board, which I don't think right. is, a, is a good game plan from the Isaac Phoenix side, but people still tend to do that. We do have access to the Hornet Queen, but sometimes that's not good enough. So I think if you think they're going to be on, on surgical or if you happen to see a game two and go to a game three, I would have the Ballista in my deck. But for in general, I tend to board it out. And with this specific build, uh, since we're looking at the the list from last weekend, we would be boarding in the Primal Commands as well as additional answers to Blood Moon, additional redundancy in your Titan that doesn't involve casting a Summer's Pack since you more often have to pack for Rex Age. And uh, mm. obviously you get some incidental value for exiling their graveyard, or rather shuffling their graveyard in, which shuffling their graveyard in is actually... Uh, a very relevant motive on that card in this matchup because it's relevant oh, against yeah. Crackling, Crackling Drake. Drake. Crackling Drake yeah. is actually a very difficult card to beat outside of Hornet Queen because you, you can't get it with a bog, and the, and that's something that actually comes up fairly frequently. Yeah, I can buy that. Crackling Drake is a weird, weird magic card, and uh, one that definitely presents a new set of problems to us. So there's a starting point. You have your first matchup figured out how you're going to sideboard, and if all of this is feeling somewhat overwhelming right now, I get it. I understand this is a challenging deck to learn, but it's also a deck that has a lot of resources surrounding it. Uh, you mentioned Francisco previously. Francisco is an Argentinian streamer, streams Amulet all the time at a very high level, knows the deck inside and out, also wrote an incredible guide to Amulet Titan, like 70 pages of information on Amulet Titan. And it's got sideboard plans for every single matchup. Granted, a lot of it is outdated. Obviously, this deck continues to evolve. But despite the fact, you can still get an idea of how players are thinking about certain matchups, what you're trying to achieve in certain matchups. It's a really great starting point. And I want to go ahead and throw his Twitter handle out there because I know Francisco absolutely loves talking Amulet and you'll be able to get all of his resources. Uh, It's FPAW. L-U-S-Z-M-T-G on Twitter. And and check Francisco out. It's just a great resource for the Amulet community. Beyond that, when I was starting out, like I said, I read your articles on StarCityGames.com. I also read Ari's articles on the deck. I think both were very helpful with getting some foundation. Uh, I've also since written an article about Amulet, and it's 
broader. It's not going into specifics. It's not talking about individual cards, individual sideboard decisions. It's more about how to learn Amulet, how to navigate your first few games with the deck and how to think about the deck generally. So I'd advise you to check that out. And finally, there's also an entire Discord that just talks about Amulet all day. You can sit there all day with folks. They'll talk through every single possible question you might have. It's an incredibly helpful discord do a little googling just search for like amulet discord and i bet you find it very quickly but i'll try and provide a link if you if you tweet at me i'm happy to share that edgar any other resources for amulet that you can think of that i left out no i think those are the main ones uh definitely recommend francisco's stream he uh i think he really understands the deck fundamentally and i think he puts out a lot of good content there i I also stream a little bit myself if, if people are interested in that but uh I don't do it nearly as frequently as he does, but with a modern pro tour coming up, I'm definitely more incentivized to do that. So I might do do some more of that going forward. How good do you feel knowing? I mean, you're you're playing amulet at this pro tour, right? Like, what are the odds you don't play amulet? Is there any percentage chance you would do something different? I think if there's a percentage chance, it's like close to one. It's it's it seems incredibly unlikely that even if I think that a, a deck is is better, that it's it's the correct choice for me and uh, if you were to rank all the decks in modern that uh, improve due to the mulligan change, I think that Amulet would be second or third on that list as well, and that's just even more incentive for for me to me, me to play it. Completely agree. So you basically just get to live limited for a while. Think about limited. It's going to be a hard format to test for, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm hoping I don't sewer that. But still, <laughs> right? It's it's gotta it's gotta take a load off your mind. I, I know the last modern pro tour I played, it was just like this horrible, horrible experience where up until two days before the Pro Tour, I had no idea what I was playing. And I got lucky and made the right decision, but it was just this feeling of uncertainty for literally like two months, just no idea what I was going to play. It changing every week what I thought was best. Then there was unbannings that totally shook up the format. And it was a really, really overwhelming experience. And uh, thankfully it worked out, but man, it's got to feel great to just dodge all that stress in this instance. Oh, it's definitely going to be a good feeling. I'm sure I'm going to appreciate it when it when when crutch time comes and all my teammates are worrying about what to play and I'm and I'm just sitting there jamming some arena drafts. What do you think the odds are that your teammates turn to you and are just like, okay, teach me, it's time? I think it's, they've asked they've asked if I've been willing, and of course I've said yes, and and I've been pressing and telling them to to try to get the reps in, but I, I think that at least one of them will play it. I wouldn't be surprised if multiple of them played it, but. I guess we'll we'll see where their testing goes and whether or not they're willing to commit. Do you think there's still time right now? If you have never played a game of Amulet at this moment, do you think you can become competent enough by the time of the Pro Tour? I think you could. I think it depends on what kind of mind you have for Magic because playing this deck is very much not like playing a regular Magic deck. I, th- I, think, I think you can be very fundamentally great at this game and still be bad at amulet even with practice i think it it requires a different kind of way of approaching approaching puzzles in a sense not not literal puzzles but but how to solve a game and i think that anyone can can achieve that state it's just how quickly you would get there and and i think that a month it would be more than enough time for for certain individuals yeah i agree it's a deck that some players are going to gravitate to faster than others. For me, it kind of feels like my ideal modern deck. I love long-term planning. I love uh, thinking a few turns ahead and Amulet Titan rewards all of that. So I don't see myself leaving this deck anytime soon either. 
I still find a lot of joy in playing it. And I feel like I'm always improving, which is a huge part of my attraction to a deck to know that I constantly have room to get better. It'll keep me coming back for more. And that's just how I feel about Amulet Titan. So hopefully we'll engender some new players uh, into our Amulet crew. We're always happy to have more people working on the deck, thinking about the deck. And it feels like each time I do something about Amulet, I, I write about it. I chat a little bit at, about it on the podcast. New people are picking it up and I'm very, very happy to see that. So why don't we go ahead and get to our question now? We've done a mammoth episode on Amulet, but since we had you here, Edgar, I knew we had to talk every single last bit of Amulet I could get out of you. And uh, I think we've provided for the listeners this week, but we want to provide one more thing. And that's an answer to a question from one of our patrons. And this comes in fact from another member of the Amulet Brethren. It's, It's Will Pulliam. And Will wants to know, what cards we could see being reprinted in modern horizons that could impact Amulet Titan. So Edgar, are there any cards you've had your eyes on that you're really hoping make the cut in this next all modern expansion? Well, if I, if I could dream, I would, I would pray for, uh, for an exploration, but I, I think we both know that that is far, far and above the power level that is acceptable in the current age. Um, Seems a little overpowered. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another, another thing that I think that is is probably too strong is crop rotation. Uh, something that I, I don't think is realistic. The the only thing that I've been able to think of that seems like a distinct possibility, if not likely, is a card called Archon of Valor's Reach. This is a wild one. I did not know this card existed until you talked to me about it. So this is a green white creature for green white creature type Archon. Power and Toughness 5-6, Flying Vigilance Trample. As Archon of Valor's Reach enters the battlefield, choose Artifact, Enchantment, Instant Sorcery, or Planeswalker. Players can't cast spells of the chosen type. This is a good pick, Edgar. This is a very vanilla card. It fits into every possible set. It's super powerful. It's super weird. And I think it kind of slots into the modern format. It could be interesting. Right. It, it's it's a port over from Legacy Elves, actually. The, that deck plays it as a natural order target to just shut out some decks. And it, it just seems mm-hmm. like this perfect combination of just powerful enough and also just kind of weird enough that the, it could slip into a set like this with, without a, maybe, maybe them thinking it would have that high of an impact where it would slot perfectly into a deck filled with EDH staples like Amulet. Yeah, this is a weird one. And that's one of the things you love about Amulet is you find uses for all these weird cards. They're kind of rejuvenated under the watch of Amulet Titan. And it's, it's fun to see cards like this sneak into the format. How about how about some lands that we could look for? Like, Ooh. would cycling lands matter? Mm, I don't think a cycling land would make the duck. I don't know how I would fit a Tranquil Thicket if that was, a, if that was one of the lands. Yeah, maybe like is is something like Maze of Ith too strong? Probably they would never print a land. Oh, definitely too strong. Print a land that doesn't produce mana again. I don't think that would ever happen. Right. I don't. I don't think there's any land that would make the cut. Maybe maybe like a Cabal Pit. That that would be nice. Oh, that's a weird one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this set's going to be super exciting, and whether there's something for our deck or not, I can't wait for it. I want to see what it does to the rest of the format, Um, but. That's the thing about Amulet Titan, right? It can always find weird applications for cards and and slot things in that you wouldn't expect. So if there's anything, any green creature that has a meaningful impact on the game, 
you can rest assured that Amulet Titan will certainly consider it. Yeah, I've done I've done a gatherer search for every green creature in modern more times than I'm willing to admit. So <laughs> I believe that. It's nice to know where your bread is buttered and we'll always have access to our summoners packs to grab any green creature we want. What's the weirdest one you've ever considered? Can you think of a real oddball one that was like it doesn't have to have major deck, but was real close to making your deck? Uh most recently, the one that I tested for briefly was Glissa Sunseeker from Mirrodin, if you know, if you know the text on no that No idea one. what that does. So no clue. It's a 2 green green for a 3-2 first strike, and it taps to destroy target artifact with converted mana cost equal to the amount of floating mana you have. How is that a real card? I have no <laughs> memory of this card whatsoever. Yeah, and it, it just happens to be a card that that can destroy some war prison decks if they weren't flush with as many needles as they are. That's a wild one. We'll have to keep an eye on that one. <laughs> I mean, they would have to know the name of that card to ever possibly name it. So at least for a week, you'd probably get away with it. Maybe not in the top eight, but uh, in your elimination rounds, you'd get there. Keep that one in my back pocket. Yeah, definitely save it. All right, Edgar, I appreciate you coming on the show so much. I think you've delivered an incredible amount of information to our listeners anything you want to plug you want to give your twitter handle so people can go ahead and follow you over on twitter yeah my twitter is easy it's at edgar mtg uh you can actually find me on all social media like that so feel free to give me a follow i talk about amulet a lot and that's your twitch channel as well yes yeah okay so please give edgar a follow and as is tradition here on the game podcast it is your responsibility as the guest to sign us out do you know what you got to do here i know what i gotta do Hit it. That's game.